to Remainders. I'm your host, Darren Burrell. And I'm your co-host, Patrick McIntyre. We will explore the stories from our conscious collection of music, books, and film. The ones that have shaped our lives. Join us as we take a closer look at what remains. All right, welcome to Remainders, where today we'll be talking about coffee and cigarettes, directed by legendary auteur, musician, and artist Jim Jarmusch. Jarmusch is one of American independent cinema's biggest influence, with classic films including Stranger Than Paradise, Mystery Train, Dead Man, Only Lovers Left Alive, and his most recent film, The Dead Don't Die, where Bill Murray, Adam Driver, and Tilda Swinton fend off zombies in their small rural town. Over the course of his career, Jarmusch has continually told the stories of social misfits experiencing the downside of the American dream. His film career has spanned over 40 years now, and he continues to cement his status as one of the most unique, innovative, and experimental filmmakers working today. With Coffee and Cigarettes, though, he assembles a cast of characters that would define his trademark loner status and heavy focus on the obscure and the strange. The film is an assembly of 11 shorts where strangers meet together and discuss the serious and the mundane while consuming, unsurprisingly, coffee and cigarettes. But between the conversations they have fueled by nicotine and caffeine and Jarmusch's attention to breaking structure and formula, we wanted to figure out why his work has remained with us for so long. So Darren, I have two questions for you. First of all, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Pat. Thanks a lot. I'm back in Chicago where there's a lot of snow, and I released a music video with my band TLB yesterday, so things are going pretty good. <laughs> Sounds like you're killing it, and yeah. I'd love to hear that. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, we, I'm just getting off a fresh uh, watch of Coffee and Cigarettes, uh, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about this movie because it's, it's one of my favorite films from one of my favorite directors. And uh, to begin, just to kick it off, I want to know two things. I'd love to know where Coffee and Cigarettes falls in Jarmusch's filmography for you. And two, whether you're drinking coffee right now. Because I was running late, I did not brew myself a second pot of coffee. I already woke up this morning at about 5 a.m. So I've been working and that pot of coffee went pretty fast this morning. So I am not. But where does it fall in my grand scheme of Jim Jarmusch films? Um you know, I will say that there are a few Jim Jarmusch films I have not seen, so I can't honestly say it with his full filmography in mind, but it is somewhere in the middle. And I think it's because of the fact that it is a series of segments that aren't necessarily fit, they don't necessarily fit together. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's not necessarily something where I can say it's a full film that I sit down and enjoy. Uh, for for a story. It's sort of a a bunch of segments of things that make me think. So for that reason, it's not necessarily uh, up there with, let's say, Patterson, which I loved. And it's not necessarily up there with, I would say, my favorite Jim Jarmusch film, which is Dead Man. Also, another one of my favorite films is Night on Earth. And, uh, you know, I think that Jim Jarmusch himself is a reminder to me of what I love, which is 1970s New York City, 
and also some old Hollywood with his influence of Nick Ray, uh, which in many ways I believe was a mentor of his. And there's a lot wrapped up into the man himself, which makes his films so much more interesting to me, especially in this film, as we'll talk about. There's a lot of New York City ingrained in this, especially the art scene and ghost of the music scenes past, um, which is one reason why I really, really love coffee and cigarettes. Being, you know, 1970s CBGBs, Ramones, uh, Debbie Harry, Andy Warhol. I, I'm just such a fan of that stuff. I do agree with you. It, it is, we watch these odd pairings and their odd conversations. Uh, and that's kind of how Jarmusch put it. The focus is on the characters, which is what drives Jarmusch's entire career. And in Coffee and Cigarettes, he... Um, kind of really dives headfirst into the idea of character interactions that stay with you. And I do agree with you that they are unrelated, but I almost feel like that's purposeful, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later and how I think that uh, that misfit aspect is just kind of the reason why this, this one particularly is uh, the film that kind of sticks with me more than any of his other ones, even though I have plenty to say about uh, other ones that I do love from him. The initial, the movie just opens right up with Roberto Benigni and Stephen Wright. How familiar with Stephen Wright? And is just in general. I, I love him. Yeah, and I think this is a weird pairing um, of, of two, two people. Yeah, yes, Because, exactly. you know, Roberto Benigni, we can talk about for days, um, and sort of that positive attitude, and obviously he's a frequent collaborator of Jim Jarmusch's early films. So, yeah, it's a weird pairing. Strange, very strange. It's fantastic. I mean, Stephen Wright, his deadpan comedy has always been one of my favorites. In this scene, Wright barely understands what Benini is talking about. He's talking 100 miles an hour while they're sitting, uh, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. And he comes up with the idea of drinking coffee so that he can dream really fast. And then he comes up with a potentially amazing idea of also freezing coffee and creating coffee popsicles, like for kids, as he says. And I think that's kind of like that really sets the tone for the movie and just kind of the odd ideas that are going to come out of it. Yeah, the popsicles, which is the way that the thread kind of comes together is later on in the Bill Murray section. They talk about that. I have a friend that talked about popsicles and, you know, these caffeine pops. And so, you know, at times you'll hear things that make sense from other segments. And I think Ebert had a a quote, and I'm not, I I don't know the exact quote, so please don't quote me out there. But it had something to do about, like, he loved these scenes and he wished they almost would go on longer. However, he thought some of them fell short, uh, which I can see, you know, because I I don't think Jarmusch had originally intended for these to be, uh, fluid, as as we mentioned at the beginning, for it to be a, fl- a fluid story. It was just really supposed to be segments. However, uh, to back up a little bit from this, some themes that do reoccur in all of the segments here, and uh, don't quote me again, but I think there's probably like nine to ten or something like that segments that you get to see here. Eleven. Eleven, I'm sorry. That's right. Eleven themes that you get to see here, and all of the tables have checkered patterns, and if they're not on the tables, you see it in the cups, uh, such as the Kate Blanchett story, and all of the locations are different. So, you know, these patterns, like, imagine if you can um, an old picnic, you know, that has those checkered pattern, um, I imagine, because it's black and white, you don't get to really see, but I imagine that they're red and white checkered patterns on the table or on these cups. And so every segment has uh, something like that, except for one, which has more triangles 
triangle patterns, which is the Alpha Molina one that I noticed. But that one is also different hmm. in the fact that they're drinking tea and not coffee in it. So it's interesting that almost all of them have those checkered patterns. Uh, but in that Alfred Molina one, you see the checkered pattern on the, the napkins. So it does have them there. Hmm. Um, there's sound effects in here that I think are so brilliant. I didn't want to really spend a lot of time on this except for the fact that because it's so dialogue heavy and because there's minimal music in this the sound of the coffee cups hitting the plates that they're on or the clinking that happens in almost every single one of these segments it just sound it sounds so familiar and especially in a time where we're in a pandemic where I haven't sat down across from another person in a full year it really made me reminisce about sitting down just to have a, a simple cup of coffee with somebody so I thought it was beautiful to watch this film at this time, you know, uh, and, and even to have cigarettes, um, you don't see that anymore, at least here in the Midwest. I do believe there's places in the world where you can still smoke indoors, but it's very rare. That hasn't happened since 2007 when they, they stopped. Uh, there was a ban on smoking indoors here. So in a lot of ways, you kind of get to see something that's a, a relic of the past. And it sounds funny because it's not really that far removed. But a movie like Coffee and Cigarettes can't really happen in 2021. One, there's probably a lot of people born watching this movie now that don't remember what it was like to smoke indoors. Two, a lot of people would never understand what it's like to have a full conversation with somebody without pulling out their cell phone. There are cell phones in 2003 when, you know, the most recent segments are filmed and you only really get to see it in like the higher society stuff like the Alfred Molina taking the call because cell phones were relatively new at the time. That's the only time you really see it. But he's not browsing the Internet or at times sit down with somebody and make an excuse to be able to pull out your phone and show somebody something on it so that you can just at least have your phone with you. It's like a crutch, right, in all these conversations. But in coffee and cigarettes, you get to see legitimate conversations. A lot of times they're not necessarily fun conversations to have, or there's awkward pauses or, or scenarios, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But you don't have the crutch in this film to pull out your phone. You have to sit through those moments and you have to live them with the characters. And at times as you're watching, I feel like it's very cringy um, and almost like you want to get out. And especially knowing that everybody's hopped, especially in the Roberto Benini scenes where he's like, yeah, how many cups of coffee have you had? And their hands are shaking and you feel it in the audience. Like, you know, oh my God. Also, like music and medicine and how those combine in this is a reoccurring theme. Stylistically, too, every cup of coffee in the beginning is very small. I don't know if you noticed that. Almost like espresso-looking coffee cups. Until later when Kate Blanchett asks for espresso, exactly espresso, and not just regular coffee. And then the cups come back huge, which I thought was weird. Uh, I don't really know what that meant. This is a different movie than I thought it was when I first saw it in 2003, man. You know, I, I saw this in a different light because of the fact that so much has changed since 2003 the 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 introduction of cell phones and the the banning of smoking indoors that this is as most great artists do commenting and making note of what it's like to to document the time you're living in love it all right you threw a lot at me there so i'm gonna, I'm gonna i got some rebuttals and i got some reflections uh stemming from that i love it so i'm gonna go back to the first one of the first things you said the minimum music i love how you were pointed out how the the clanking and the clacking of the the coffee cups just really send the ambience i 
love, love, love sitting in coffee shops. It's one of my favorite things to do with my downtime. If I have free time, I'm sitting in a coffee shop, reading a book, or maybe even writing, but mostly just reading and enjoying uh, the setting in Chicago coffee shops. Obviously, in the last year, that's something I've lost out on, uh, as everybody has, so I've definitely, uh, it was a quite an experience, as you mentioned, watching this in a pandemic. Getting together for coffee is, you know, people still are able to do it, socially distanced, but not in the way that this movie portrays it at all. This is uh, the before times and uh, it was certainly on my mind while watching it. But in terms of the music, uh, I think there were definitely some major songs that stuck with me uh, throughout the film. So the entire movie is bookended by Louie Louie, famous Richard Berry song. Um, it opens with that, the original, and then closes with Iggy Pop's cover of Louie Louie. And I love how that just kind of like ties it together. Uh, you start from the classic rock and then you bring it into the more modern rock. I actually remember kind of uh, discovering Funhouse by the Stooges through this movie because it's, it, it's the playing on the jukebox in the Jack White and Meg White scene. It's like they just cut straight to that scene and that you just hear Iggy Pop singing for like two minutes straight while they're staring at each other with those awkward glances. And then in the Renee scene, uh, the original cover of Crimson and Clover gets a lot of attention and it, it, these songs uh, have just like kind of stuck with me. Like I still remember hearing this uh, for the first time watching the movie in 2003 and uh, I definitely think, and we'll get into a little bit more of the role of music in Jarmusch's career. Like you can certainly attest to this the importance in music uh, for his movies. I love how you pointed out the use of cell phones. Just the, the loss of connection that we have now because of sm more of smartphones and, and the way, as you uh, correctly uh, put it, the way people kind of just use it as a crutch. And so the elimination of that and not having any of that was, was incredible. Right now, my, my nephew is luck he's very lucky and i think he knows it to go to columbia right now and he has been studying film and he we talk you know and i try to explain a few things about my knowledge of film just because i love it so much and he's learning about so much which i'm learning about from him which is great but the one thing i tell him every time we'll talk about a film I'll say, hey, can you make sure you put your, fil your, your cell phone in the other room? I go, don't even have it in the room when you watch a film. Um, it's, that's really important. I, I think um, most people that really enjoy film will, will tell you, just don't be distracted. Like, you owe it to yourself to really enjoy this, this moment, you know? So, yeah, the movie did start filming in 1986. It, he, he filmed this over the course of, uh, like, over 15 years, essentially. I think, I mean, you might be right, I think the Roberto Benigni Stephen Wright one was the first one. I might be wrong, but I thought that was the original one from 96. And, and yeah, maybe the, the, the Tom Waits and Iggy Pop one was filmed closely after. But, yeah, he started filming this kind of, like, in between films in 1986 and then it was released in 2003 culminating with uh, all 11 uh, shorts so i kind of love and that's kind of another reason why i wanted to talk about this one why i propose this one is because mm, i mean it's certainly one of my favorite films i wouldn't say it's his best film but it is kind of the most unique in his filmography and we'll get into that a little bit later. I wanted to ask you about Roberto Benigni in general. What are your thoughts on him? I, I love what he brings to the table when I see him in films and I think everybody out there will know for sure Roberto Benigni from Life is Beautiful. Um, obviously his most known 
at Academy Awards where he's, <laughs> you know, walking on the chairs all up to the stage. It's just a beautiful guy. He seems so full of life. And you, you, you long to know people like that, that just kind of are a little uh, out there in terms of full of life and, and fun. So I just wondered, you know, do you, are you a big fan of his? And what are your takeaways from an actor like that in a scene like we just saw in that first scene? I mean, to be honest, I really only am familiar with Benini through Jarmusch. I've seen Life is Beautiful. I saw it when it first came out. So I was like a kid when I watched it. I have not watched it since. Uh, I've really, and I can't even tell you the last movie I watched that wasn't a Jarmusch movie that it was in. He's in Night on Earth. He's the star of Down by Law, which is uh, one of my favorite Jarmusch films. That's him, uh, Tom Waits, and John Lurie escaping from prison. And then he's in this one. I mean, I love him because he's so perfectly fitted in Jarmusch's world. As I mentioned, the, the, the social misfits enduring the loss of the American dream, essentially. Obviously, him, him coming again a little bit of an outsider of that, but he still brings the same manic... He's almost like a, 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 an opposite to a lot of the more... Mm, droll characters in Jarmusch's films. You'll have somebody chill, like John Lurie or uh, Tom Waits, and then his, or Stephen Wright, and then uh, Benini's manic expressions and and discussions uh, just uh, are such a, a great compliment. To and it. a sort of like silent film comedy that he brings to it, you know, with the expressions on totally. his face. And, and just like that bizarre, like, can change the mood of a scene in a second with like something that he does, you know? I, I love him as an actor, and um, Night on Earth is my favorite performance of his. Uh, of course, You know, I know what you're saying about Down by Law being the star, and he's great in that, of course, but just Night on Earth, like him as that cab driver wearing those sunglasses and just driving around and you think the whole time this guy's nuts he's gonna crash and what a great scene i mean i can't imagine jarmish filming that and not like being like wow i have gold on my hands right here this guy is just killing it for me (laughs) i love it well yeah like in this opening scene with stephen wright he has that uh uh, tone but then uh, it almost like flips it when stephen wright is saying he has to go to the dentist and and benini's proposal is that stephen please, I'll go to the dentist for you. Or just kind of like this little quick reversal. It's like, yeah, he's actually uh, walking the walk uh, with the way he's acting. All right, so let's move on to uh, your favorite. You said you wanted to move on to your favorite segment. I'm interested in what that's going to be. This is easily my favorite segment. This is the segment I think is worth watching the movie alone. Uh, worst case scenario, you just YouTube this one segment, but it is somewhere in California, uh, we alluded to, the meeting of Iggy Pop and Tom Waits. And this is arguably my favorite scene in any Jarmusch film in his entire filmography. So, so in it, Iggy Pop and Tom Waits are show up in a chill late night coffee shop somewhere in California for a talk. It's almost it's it's kind of the most contentious meeting in the movie um, between the two of them. It's contentious, but Iggy he wants to be friends so bad, and Tom Waits just keeps on throwing it back in his face with snarky comments, rolling his eyes at Iggy. And there are two kind of like interactions that the entire segment is, is perfection, but there are two interactions that just have stuck with me ever since I first saw it and I've rewatched a million times. So they both see the pack of cigarettes sitting at the table and neither of them claim it as their own. They both said they've quit. Uh, there's 25 big years of me. I'm definitely not uh, smoking anymore. And they both say they've given up. But Tom Waits pauses and with such confidence, he says that, quote, the beauty of quitting is now that I've quit, I can have one. 
And Iggy just rolls his eyes, but they end up lighting, both lighting a cigarette, and Iggy absolutely comes to life from it. Yeah, I mean, this scene is amazing, of course. I think you know that I'm not the biggest Tom Waits fan. I know, I know, but I, why are you acting like this is the first time you heard this? I've told you that before. I mean, I just... Because I'm making sure I'm making sure the audience knows my disdain <laughs> for that, that comment yeah. that you just I know, made. I hate, I almost don't want to say that to you because I know how you're going to react. I, I feel like 10 years ago, I would have reacted like with like, wow, that's ridiculous. But now... I mean, I, he's still one of my favorites for sure, but I, I do kind of, I am more sympathetic to the, not the anti-Tom Waits uh, uh, faction, but like, you know, the ambivalent Tom Waits faction where it's like, it just doesn't do it for you. I totally Yeah, get I guess that. that's the so. thing. It's like, I love Tom Waits, okay? I do. I think he's great. I loved him in The Dead Don't Die. I mean, I love him in every Jim Jarmusch film that he's in. I just can't get on board with like these poets... Almost in a way, Iggy Pop is like that at times too. You know, these like poets talking over song. I think it's cool. I think it's just definitely like okay. a genre um, of of music that I I just never gravitated towards. However, I can appreciate it. So maybe that'll lo- lessen the blow a little. <laughs> You're talking the the beat poetry, kind of. Yeah, I believe that they kind of picked up in a new newer way, like eight in the '80s for sure. That kind of like Lou Reed, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, you're making. A few generalizations there. <laughs> Lou Reed is Lou Reed's even more of a god in my eyes than than Tom, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. Um, yeah, but I, again, I totally get it. Well, there's no doubt that this scene is amazing, though, whether I like Tom Waits or not. Um, and you're right, Iggy Pop. <laughs> what you what you can what you have to admit is his eye rolls and his snarky looks are are a thing of perfection. Yeah? Oh yeah, and I mean the way that he kind of just goes. Yeah, you can call me Iggy. You can call me Iggy. And he goes, uh, hey, Jim. You know, he goes, <laughs> he just does, he just totally disregards them. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's what you want to hear. You know, it's the kind yeah. of stuff that you want to hear from these characters. Um, and the, only they could do, you know, like they're just so pro. And I was shocked to find that it was filmed in 93, to be honest with you. Um, because it was kind of like felt so in place it could have been 2003 it just felt like a, a moment in time i guess all these scenes just seem like a good moment in time that that really transcends time fun fact about 93 today i just discovered that uh jim jarmusch directed tom waits uh music video i don't want to grow up in 1993 oh wow which is a great song from one of his better albums which the, the ramones went on to cover actually in a, in a great cover that was a pivotal video because that was a video that showed up on Beavis and Butthead. Mm. So I saw it when I was like a little kid, didn't even know what who Tom Waits was, but I was watching Beavis and Butthead. And then years later when I discovered Tom Waits and hearing the songs, and then, oh, this was that really weird video that I still have stuck in my head watching as a kid on Beavis and Butthead. It, it's in typical Jarmusch fashion, very odd and very uh, visual in its placement of the social misfits in the video. And, uh, yeah, that's just something I discovered. It's just one of the more formative music videos of my childhood was directed by Jim Jarmusch. So uh, I guess not really any surprise there, to be honest. But I want to get into my other favorite exchange with Iggy and Tom. I got to double down on you because if I'm going to be the Iggy Pop here and you're going to be the Tom Waits, I got to tell you, okay, well, what about Gimme Danger? Have you seen that? I have, yeah, the, the, the documentary by Jarmusch. Yep. Yeah, about yeah, the Stooges. Yeah, so it's like yeah. awesome that you're talking about him directing this video that was, you know, a quintessential video for um, 
Tom Waits, but then he also went and directed this great documentary in 2016 about Iggy Pop and the Stooges. No, it's fantastic. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Stooges for sure. But in this exchange, Iggy asks whether uh, Tom likes to hang out at the, at the place they're at right then. And Tom's like, yeah, this, this is my chill place. And Iggy's response is, oh, I was just wondering because I didn't see anything of yours on the jukebox. <laughs> yeah. And so Tom gets really uncomfortable, just like you know, a little offended by that. And, you know, he proposes maybe Iggy would be more comfortable at, at the Taco Bell. Maybe, maybe we can go hang out at the Taco Bell if that's more your style. And Iggy has my favorite line in the movie, what are you saying, man? Are you saying, like, I'm a Taco Bell kind of guy? <laughs> and this has stuck with me forever, uh, ever since then. Just the, the comic timing of, of these two musicians is astounding. And, and just to, like, to, to show my adoration for this film of why it was such a, a formative piece in, in my youth, um, this is a... Uh, so I'm showing this is we're on a podcast, but this I'm, I'm showing this to Darren right now. This is a birthday card of Iggy Pop saying, "What what do you say, man? I'm a Taco Bell kind of guy." And this was a birthday card from my sister for my 21st birthday. Unbelievable. Her her wishing me a happy birthday, happy 21st birthday. I'm sorry I'm missing your party. I'll get you a gift when I get home. Obviously, she was traveling at the time, so she wasn't there. But uh, this is just cementing how pivotal this scene has been for uh, me in my 20s and 30s. That is fantastic. Wow, I wish, uh, I, we're going to have to post that, by the way, so people can see what that looks like. I mean, dude, that is an amazing card. My sister is a huge Iggy Pop fan, and she was obviously uh, receptive to this film at the time, and uh, clearly it was the only movie I was talking about. Yeah. And, uh, and we've shared our adoration for Iggy. We... Um, so shortly after this film is kind of when Iggy Pop reunited with the Stooges for their album. So my sister and I go to see the Stooges and their reunion tour. Oh, wow. I'm jealous. At the Congress Theater in Chicago, the now defunct Congress Theater in Chicago. Still one of my favorite concerts of all time. Gee, the place is huge. Was that sold out? It was sold out. Yeah, we, we got there. It was an incredible experience to see Iggy Pop. He was, he, around the time, he must have been turning about 60, I think, because he's like 73 or 74 now. Um, I might have the years off a little bit, but he was well up there at the time, and he was a jump around on stage like he was in the 70s. And it was it was just incredible to watch, obviously, performing all the old school Stooges songs that I absolutely love. Probably the sweatiest concert I've ever been to, and most of the sweat was from the other people jumping around. It was so hot in that fucking yeah, venue. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was a uh, the connection between Iggy, the Stooges, and this movie is one that has uh, stuck with me for a long time. That's great to know. Thanks for sharing that, man. Uh, I didn't know that about you. I mean, I knew that you loved Iggy Pop and everything, but I didn't realize like how far it stemmed into this movie. And that's another thing that's great about Jim Jarmusch as a, as a director, introducing people to these things that any great artist. Does. Does. you don't that's why you reflect the times as an artist you don't want people to forget these things that's why we're doing remainders I think uh, great artists that we believe are important and that have a thing or two to say about the world whether they're living or have left us um, it's important to remember them it's important to keep their message going and uh, I'm glad that's why we have remainders to do that you know I, I think it's so important we're gonna go kind of in order here with uh, the second one in the film that is twins with the brother and sister of Spike Lee. 
um, which is great. You know, like Jim Jarmusch must have some sort of great relationship with that family. And I loved seeing that because they're here as twins and they're sitting in what I believe is Memphis and they've got a waiter and the waiter is another frequent collaborator of Jim Jarmusch, which is Steve Buscemi. And he's this great Memphis waiter who's, uh, that's kind of the point I think of all the waiters that are in this is to sort of be in the way. It's like, we're trying to have a conversation and for, and we'll talk about this when we get to the Renee French one. I can relate to both characters, like the one who sits down and wants to be left alone, but also like the waiter who's like, do I go over there and get more coffee? Like, Oh shit. Like, uh, I'm not sure they want to be bothered, but I like should probably be a good waiter and give them some coffee. This is what I want to talk about with this segment. Okay. And I want to talk about Jarmish and his understanding of racism and his complete understanding of how important it is to talk about it and to talk about it in the way that he has in so many movies. One of the best ways I've ever seen racism talked about is in Night on Earth, in that last, uh, the scene before the last one um, where the guy's driving the cab and he picks up the blind girl. He's like, well, what about me? You know, people have colors. Like, and she's like, I don't see color. I feel it. It's just beautiful. That's like the first time I remember thinking about Jarmish and the work that he's doing because this scene does it really well too. And it's having these two African-American brother and sisters who are twins talking to each other, having coffee and cigarettes. And here comes the waiter talking about Elvis. As he is mentioning Elvis, he starts to say his theory about Elvis, which is Elvis's brother. Everyone thinks he died at childbirth, but I have a theory that he didn't. What happened is midway through Elvis's career, they found each other. And his brother ends up being the one who made the mistake and going to Vegas, getting into those jumpsuits and kind of ruining the end of Elvis's career. And, you know, he, the real Elvis wouldn't have done that. Eating the fried peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the two characters here say, you know, Elvis stole all of these great black musicians catalog and their act and all the and then you know this is something that's not new everybody knows that deep down Elvis went to a lot of these shows heard about it and started moving and singing and doing all these songs you know gospel like but also like in a in a purposeful way picking up what he was learning in a lot of these places they're saying that he stole you know Elvis stole these vibe really basically I don't know how else to say it stole his music yeah yeah and then Steve Buscemi says well, that's the thing. It was probably his brother who did that. And the greatest part, and this is why it's so great, Jim Jarmusch back in 2003, does that make it okay then because it was Elvis's brother? Like, it doesn't matter if it was Elvis or if it was his brother. The fact that somebody stole this whole identity and became rich and famous off of it doesn't matter if it was his twin brother, whether that's real or not. It's wrong. And I think that that's what this whole segment does, is it makes you really understand racism that way. It's very subtle. I don't know if you saw it that way. You no, know, it's pretty incredible the way that he is able to... I agree with everything you said, uh, but the way Charmush is able to encompass all that while still maintaining his tone. And, and just the performances, which I actually didn't know those were the, the, the siblings of Spike Lee. So that's pretty incredible uh, to illuminate that. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but to have Buscemi's exp uh, expression and performance uh, to be comical, uh, but totally like ignorant. And not in a malicious or malevolent way, but just true ignorance, where it's like, 
well, I don't know all about that, but I think that that's where the theory comes in. Right. No matter who's stealing black culture, um, they're still making a buck on it, and they're they're that's a white man who right. who blasts it all the way to the top. So if it's as, if it's Elvis or it's not, what makes that okay? Yeah. That's that's Jarmish just being brilliant, just being a brilliant brilliant storyteller. Love it. Such a great scene. And very conscious of what happens in the world, by the way. Bushemi just constantly showing up uh, in uh, Ujarmush's career. I haven't seen Mr. E-Train in, in years. Where does that rank for you? I love it. I watched it last year for okay. like maybe only the second time in my life. I'd love to see it more. But dude, how could you not? Joe Strummer, Bushemi. I mean, uh, and just th- there's a whole, that's the whole thing is like going to Memphis for the whole like culture thing of Elvis, you know? And of course, that's another thing Jarmish does that we should just definitely make mention right now. Every single film, pretty much, that I can recall is set up in these normal, sort of seedy towns that are kind of desolate feeling, that are kind of empty. And that's a setup of almost every film I've seen of his. Um, Obviously not in this film, because it always takes place within the setting that these segments are are filmed but in most of them you know it's kind of this forgotten wasteland of a city where the characters are going to be living and 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 telling the story no you're 100 percent right about that the settings are often a character in the film what was really striking to me was as i kind of mentioned how so many of his characters in his films are loners and outsiders uh so for example in only lovers left alive Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston, they played two vampires. Uh, this is Jarmusch's film about, mm, this is one of his more recent ones in the last 10 years. But it's the story of loners whose contempt for society is palpable. And in that one, he uses Detroit as a defunct character. It's like the main setting, he gives a lot of attention to Detroit, as in Detroit is another misfit character in the film. The failing of an American city, Detroit in ruins, shows how long Tilda Swinton's character has been living and seeing cities build up and then crumble over the time, over, over living hundreds of years as a vampire. And so that, that's just a, you made such a great point about the settings and where he chooses in America to film. And again, that's always such a great thing about artists too, telling a story of like, why people from this area act the way they do. And that's so key in telling a character's story. So moving on from there, you talked about Somewhere in California and Those Things Will Kill You. It wasn't one of my favorite segments in here, but I think that's like another thing about this film. You can kind of put yourself in the chair in either side of the person that's having coffee and cigarettes with. You've been in that scenario with somebody you've had coffee and cigarettes with or somebody you've sat next to and had a conversation. So it's all kind of relatable, you know? And really in this one, those things will kill you. It's the friend that's looking out for the other friend but just wants to kind of bust his balls about it, right? Ah, these things are going to kill you. I'm going to be thanking the undertaker when he puts you you know, six feet under the ground. It's like, yeah, of course you're going to be like, with a really good friend, you're going to go there. You're really that close where you can talk that way to somebody. So it's, again, it's a relatable scene. It's not my favorite, but, you know, you know those guys, you know? Yeah, it's, so it's Vinny Vela and uh, Joseph Regano, uh, who, I mean, it was kind of fun for me to watch because I just recently rewatched uh, Scorsese and his three mobster films, Goodfellas, uh, Casino, and Irishman. And uh, they, sh- they, they both show up in both Goodfellas and uh, Casino. And so it was, it was pretty fun. This was, 
I'm pretty sure this one was filmed right around the time of Casino when they were both pretty primary characters in that movie. So yeah, again, another slice of life, right? You're, yeah, it's definitely right. like these like Italian kind of like uh, it could be the the deli, right? You know that they're yeah. sitting in the front of no, the deli totally. and having this. this it was stuff. probably filmed like and they looked exactly like they did in Casino, so it was probably filmed like right around that time when Jarmusch was calling him up. He's like, "Hey, you guys got some time uh, on the set, so I'm going to come by and, <laughs> and film this quick little segment with you." Right. Yeah, it's kind of like what he did with uh, McConaughey. He's like, come and uh, do this Wolf of Wall Street scene on Nija, and he comes from Dallas Buyers Club uh, looking all gaunt, but somehow it worked. I haven't watched Wolf of Wall Street since... Well, he's a coke addict in it. That's why it works, you know? No, I've seen it. I haven't seen it since the theaters. I need need to rewatch that one. Where where do you stand on that one? I mean, brilliant. Okay. If you I mean, want me to, if you want me to put it lightly, brilliant. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we're we're both. I mean, I think everybody knows we're huge Scorsese fans. I just, I, I just, there are some people who just don't love that one as much as his other films. So, you know, I think DiCaprio is like a tough sell for some people. Uh, it is for me, he his earlier career is for me, even though I can't look away. It's right. weird. Yeah, I love him. I love him a lot. Um, but there's some stuff where I just wasn't believing it fully. And you know, one of us isn't his fault, I don't think. I mean, when you're going up in gangs in New York against Daniel Day-Lewis, like, good luck, buddy, you know? Yeah. So that's not one of my favorite roles. And I don't know, that just happens, you know, to some actors. But now, I mean, there's nothing that DiCaprio can't do that I don't love. He's great. Love him. Dude, The Revenant, are you kidding me? Just watched that again recently. Deserves all the accolades for that film. Okay, I want to move on to Renee French because I have a few things to say there about that. This scene is great just because it's just her. But there is one other character, which again is the waiter. And all of us, I know you have been and I have as well, been that guy who wants to come and fill up the coffee. And at one point she says, she's sitting there, she's drinking this coffee and she puts in just enough creamer. She puts in just enough sugar. She's got it where she wants it. She's like, ah, I can relax in here with my cigarette and I can have it there. And then here comes the waiter to warm up the coffee. And she says, I wish you wouldn't have just, I wish you wouldn't have done that. I had it the perfect color. I had it the perfect temperature and it was just sweet enough. And then it's really awkward, the exchanges between her and him the entire time, which is just great because it's like, as a patron, you're setting a standard, but it is just now you've now how can you relax? Like, you know, you've got this guy who's just wondering, should I come over here? Should I ask? You know, does she not want to be bothered? Um, I remember when I worked in, in uh, as a waiter, I remember some people just had that down. Like some waiters had it down, like when to not, when to bother someone, when to not. And, you know, they get tipped really well because like they just could read the people so well. But I was never like that. I would always bother people because I'd always be like, are you okay? What can I do for you here? You know? I wanted to say one thing about Renee French and one of the great things about Instagram, I won't say a ton of good things about social media because I'm not the biggest proponent of social media, although I use it a shit ton. I love following Jim Jarmusch on there. And I, around June of last year, he had posted a a photo of Renee French from the movie and I hadn't seen coffee and cigarettes in a while. And I remember though, of course this scene and she's very beautiful and she's, um, just got this way about her in it. So it's very memorable, you know? And so that scene, I see the picture and I'm like, oh yeah, coffee and cigarettes. And it was rest in peace, Renee French. 
And I thought, oh my God, you know, she, she passed away. And I had gone down then the research spiral of like, what has she done in the past? You know, since this, I hadn't really heard of anything and couldn't find anything. So some time goes by and then you bring up, you know, uh, I was like, we got to do Jim Jarmusch, but like, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to do this film. And you, then you kind of were the biggest proponent for it. And when you did, and I watched the scene again, I did look up again what has happened with Renee French, and she she passed away from from COVID um, in June. I just wanted to read this part from her obituary, if I could. It's almost like a little bit of um, a, a, a memorial in our own way for uh, for for her, because I, I'm not sure. How I, you know, this happens, but nobody really knew. I'd see at least the internet didn't seem to know much about her that I could find, except when I found her obituary that must have been written, um, you know, after she passed here. And this is just a segment, but it says, Her career began at Albany Medical Center, later becoming an OR transplant nurse at Columbia, New York Presbyterian. Those 11 years spent in OR were both rewarding and difficult. Most recently, during today's global crisis, Renee rose to the challenge. When asked if she thought it would be wise to leave the city, Renee simply replied, I am a nurse, I have a duty. She was a frontline ICU nurse until the end. And I just wanted to pause for a second because I thought that as we're talking about artists reflecting on the times, I think this is where we want to give some recognition to the healthcare workers that are out there. And you, you hear the president, our current president, say that right now. We need to give thanks to, to frontline workers and healthcare workers. But you don't really understand what that means until there's like scenarios like this that hit you on the head. This is an actress I've seen in something, and then you find out that she dedicated her life to helping people, to being a nurse during COVID times, and had died from it. And it's not just her, Pat. You know, when you go to the website for her obituary, there are tons of people. And I mean tons of people that you scroll through, that there's these people that had lives, people that loved them, that were trying to help other people that died. And, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, to bring this episode down in any way, but I think it's important to mention that Renee French died of, of COVID-19 and uh, giving our thanks to everybody out there that is helping in this pandemic right now, I think is um, important to say. It is uh, incredible to find out uh, that definitely a loss. I had no idea uh, about that, so thank you for bringing it up. First of all, amen certainly to the recognition to the healthcare workers, no doubt about that. Uh, certainly shocking finding that out right now uh, and definitely contextualizing where we're at, uh, you know, watching this film from years ago and then what it's like to, you know, experience who's, who was playing in it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, I had, I remember doing a quick, uh, Google search of her or just, um, IMDB search of her, uh, when I was watching the movie, you know, her, that segment always stuck out with me. I never knew who she was. Uh, she's obviously very charismatic. She's fantastic in the scene. Uh, she's got these striking eyes. She's got perfect comic and dramatic timing. One of the only other, uh, uh, credits was she was an intern on Spike Lee's movie Malcolm X, hmm. which is really the only other thing listed here. So, well, from what I read, it's he had some relationship. I'm not sure exactly if it was romantic or not with John Lurie, who we talked about. You know, having this HBO series that's coming out about his art. Um, but it's I don't know if that was the connection between her and Jim Jarmusch. But it just to state again, you know, I'm looking here to see 
things like you're saying, like IMDb, what has she been up to? And, and lo and behold, she's been up to helping people, being a, you know, a real legendary hero out there. And I, I was, it just stopped me in my tracks, you know? And you're like, you see the president during that time of his inauguration and putting all those flags out there, but you just really cannot understand what that means, you know, unless you're affected with it firsthand. And I think it's important for people to just kind of pause and remember that those are not numbers. Those are people out there um, that are trying to, and look, you know, thank God everybody that I know has mostly been healthy. But if you, if you think about it, somebody, it could happen in a split second and you're going to need somebody out there to help you. And that's what these people were doing. That's what Renee French was doing. And she passed away trying to do, trying to help people. And um, God bless, you know? Absolutely. 100%. Somebody in her, in her obituary did say something like, you always got your coffee the way you wanted it, which I thought was beautiful. <laughs> Little homage, you know? <laughs> Love um, it. There's this scene, no problem. And the only thing I want to say about this is, one, Cate Blanchett kicks fucking ass. I always love Cate Blanchett, especially in Life, uh, Life Aquatic, okay? I'm sure you'd love that, too. No problem. Uh, she's in Cousins, not no problem. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, that's all right. You're right. I don't know why I said that. Yep. No problem. Certainly the more dry uh, segments in the film. It's good, but it, it certainly just kind of like sits there in the middle with a, a, a little bit of uh, perplexity, I think. Is it? It's not Cousins, is it? I mean, that was the one with uh, Alfred Molina, I thought. It, it, well, it's Cousins, and then Alfred Molina has Cousins with a question mark. Oh, kick ass. They're both cousins. Yeah, they're both cousins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, I'm missing it, missing it up. But the, but the statement here that I'm going to say and the point of it that I wanted to pull out, I think still is, 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 is valid, even though I messed that up uh, very badly. So there is, and this is another theme that we didn't talk about at the beginning of Kate Blanchett, she's famous. I think there's a, a question about a lot of like notoriety and celebrity in this, um, this film. And so she seems to be the kind of star that's the blonde starlet, and she's meeting with her cousin, who is also played by Kate Blanchett, and they're two completely different people. One is like the misfit, you know, again, that doesn't fit in, and she's getting the gifting, and she's getting all of these things from her, and it's just, it's just a really awkward exchange. You could tell it's like, she's Kate Blanchett herself, like the, the movie star version is not wanting to explain herself and why she, you know, has made this life for herself to her cousin, but she wants to have a relationship with her very badly. It seems like that's kind of the thing with most of these uh, segments, that everyone wants to have a relationship with them. It just doesn't necessarily happen easily, and um, what I'm trying to get at here is there's a line, and it re- this really remains for me. And it's just a big, again, Jim Jarmish understanding life and society and the differences of people and classes. Uh, the line is, when you can't afford something... Okay, l- let me, before I say this, let me set it up. Because she gives her, Kate Blanchett's movie star role person, character, gives the other misfit version cousin a gift of makeup that she had gotten. And that happens all the time. Okay. I've seen it happen. You know, I have friends that are doing well and they want brands want you to wear their stuff. It's just like influencers and all that stuff today. Right. They want all the people that are famous quote unquote to have this stuff for free. So she gives it to her, to her cousin and her cousin is like, Oh, this is first. She's like, this is great. This is awesome. You know, like, thank you so much. And then she's, turns again and says, when you can't afford something, it's really expensive. And when you can afford something, it's free. 
that to me said it all. People are out there hurting and they need something, but they can't get it. They can't afford it and nobody wants to give it to them. Whether it's hunger or any of these other problems and afflictions that, that, that are challenges in people's lives. But yet again, the rich stay rich and they don't need to worry for anything. Yeah, we, we definitely are in good hands with Kate Blanchett. It was incredible in this segment. And uh, her just kind of pointing out in that sly little comment, the upward trajectory of how society works, whether you're, you're either, if you're not already in the upper echelon, there's nothing pushing you towards it. We can move on to another one. If you want to talk about Jack White and, and Meg White, that's fine. I'm, I was never really a fan of the White Stripes. so like, I was curious about that. Yeah, not, not really. Um, I, I can, again, appreciate Jack White and Meg White. Their, their songs are cool and everything, but just not my, my cup of tea. Um, and as far as like Jack White goes in the scene, and he seems to be, and they both seem to be pretty good actors, you know, I, I, and, and they, but they, they are playing themselves seemingly. So, you yeah. know, you get only so much. Yeah, I mean they're finding it. Uh, I just like the the the, the presentation of his uh, adoration for te- uh, Nikola Tesla. Mm, this is kind of just a prime example of these these misfit characters in uh, misfit uh, situations, and I think uh, it, again it's kind of always stuck with me. But yeah, you're right. It's all right. Uh, like I said earlier, the uh, incorporation of like it's a two minute intro where you just hear. Um, down on the street from the Stooges playing on the jukebox where they're just staring at each other awkwardly. And that honestly is the part that has stuck with me longer than anything else, largely because you have Iggy Pop singing. Yeah, well, I'll also say this, that um, whenever I do, like recently I've seen him during this COVID time play on Saturday Night Live, and there's never a time that I don't watch that guy and think, God damn, is he good. I mean, really, he is amazing. And he's a performer through and through and just very good at what he does, um, like, just because the music isn't for me, it doesn't mean that I don't love what he does. Um, I guess that's another musician's musician, right, Pat? That was actually the only Saturday Night Live episode I've watched in like probably five years because I knew Jack hmm. White was doing the music with uh, Bill Burr hosting, and I figured that was too good of a combination to pass up. So Yeah, that was interesting. You're right. Bill Burr was the host. Though The one thing I wanted to ask you from this scene, though, um, you know, I think what it explores in this is that a surprise almost from the person who thinks they're sort of the all-knowing person. Like, Jack White in this scene is the person who put together the Tesla coil, right? And dragged it down, and like it's almost like his trophy to drag around. Like, I made this, and I can talk about it. But the interesting fact in this is that Meg White actually knows more seemingly than he does because she knows what went wrong with it. And, and, and so did the cook who come out, comes out, you know. Um, they both mentioned things that could be wrong with it that Jack White just didn't know. So my question to you is, has that ever happened to you in, in a scene where you're kind of talking with somebody who thinks, you know, they're all knowing? It almost happens in this uh, Alfred Molina one that I'm sure we'll talk about, but that they're just kind of like dumbfounded when they find out that you might know more than them <laughs> i mean i was gonna say that's my entire life i'm always impressed with how everybody <laughs> everybody else that i ever talked to knows more uh than i do about anything so that's I, I can certainly relate to it yes yeah well sometimes in business um scenarios that i've been in you get into the room with these people that just like act so puffy you know at first and they're just kind of like ah you know, I got to be on my biggest guard and I'm just kind of sitting here like so free and easy being like, man, I don't really care what happens after this like conversation. Yeah. Like it's going to go whatever way it's going to go. So like, you know, I'm just going to be as knowledgeable as I can and, and just do my thing. And so like, but there's these people that are just like protecting their guard at all times. And I'm not saying Jack White is in this scene, but he's definitely like 
look at me, I have done this Tesla coil and uh, check out how it works. You know, when, when you do ask me about it, I'll get into it with you, you know, and then he does and then it breaks and but somebody else tells him how to fix it, which is great. There's a lot of, uh, throughout this whole movie, there's a lot of deflating of, of tension. Like somebody's got something, they have this, this thing, this idea, or this, this, this story, and then the other person is able to just deflate it and let the air out of the room because it's, 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 much, uh, it's much more bullshit than they had originally thought. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Like, kind of to sum up the whole movie, Pat. You know, <laughs> well, diffusing you were, scenarios. Yeah, when we were saying there's there's a lot of uh, scenarios where like one side of the conversation is yearning for a relationship for the other with the other, and then there's the reaction to that is consistently deflating it. There's two more to talk about. I think scenes uh, out of the eleven. I think we've gone through everything, and this one is cousins question mark. Uh, with Steve Coogan and Alfred Molina. And I have a question for you in it, but maybe you have something to say about the scene? Uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, certainly, I mean, just two actors that I absolutely love. Alfred Molina uh, is somebody I've, I've, I've loved for a long time. and they I even, did know that about you. I remember you liking Alfred Molina a lot. Well, they even mentioned in there, it like Steve Coogan pointing out his scene in Boogie Nights, which is still mm-hmm. one of my favorite performances in my, one of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies of all time. So, uh, And they give uh, a nod to that in this scene, so... Yeah, well, Alfred Molina himself does, which is great to hear him talk on that uh, yeah, yeah. character. So he's like, oh, yeah, with the crazy guy, with the, <laughs> Love yeah, it. With the fireworks. But yeah, you're right. Alfred Molina is great. And I also wanted to say, I think this was maybe around the time that he got the role of Doc Ock, which catapulted him to like way more of like a bigger blockbuster movie stage, um, interestingly enough. And Alfred Molina, first role, you know, of course, right? Uh, not the temple. Uh, the first one, Indiana yep. Jones. Indiana Jones yeah. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, Raiders. Yep. At, at the beginning, where uh, he doesn't he has look. To, uh, throw, throw me the whip. Yeah, he's the first character that gets smashed. Um, he doesn't look. He looks so different in that movie. Like that, I think I that's why a lot of people don't realize it's him. Like he looks nothing like he did. Like he, he was probably like uh, twenty or twenty-one at the time, but he looks nothing like he does now completely so my question in this scene this has to do with two people that are it's told in the scene that they're meeting in LA and Steve Coogan is what what they're meeting about is he's supposed to be Alfred Molina's cousin Alfred Molina's talking to him and Alfred Molina's so cool calm collected just kind of being like you know hey I love your work man you're great you know and Steve Coogan's kind of like okay and this is after he had done um 24-hour party people about the Manchester uh, music scene. And so, like, he's acting way too cool for school um, and won't, you know, give his personal phone number to him and stuff. And he's kind of like, he's asking him, it's like, are you gay, you know? Uh, And at one point, he takes a phone call and he's like, you know, talking, Alfred Molina takes a phone call and he's like listening in and he thinks it's Spike Lee on the phone and then Alfred Molina comes and sits down. He's like, no, it was Spike Jones, you know? And now... Steve Coogan thinks, you know, I can go on forever about how great the scene is for me to watch, but he does a 360. Oh, maybe I'm going to throw out my rule about giving my personal phone number out. You know, do you, you, uh, is that, would that be too weird for me to give it to you now? And he's like, Alfred Molina just like totally turns to, yeah, it would be like, cause like you fuck you, you know, which is so wonderful. And I know that people that are in those scenarios, like that they're sitting next to somebody that thinks they're just so cool to too cool for you. 
like to get the opportunity to say fuck you like i'm somebody to you motherfucker i love it and my question to you is have you have you ever been in that kind of scenario you know somebody acting like hey i'm better than you you know my first thought was i hope i've never been on the asshole end of that uh, scenario <laughs> where i pulled oh, that yeah totally <laughs> Well, there's a lot of times I talk about, too, with, like, this scenario with my brother. I always tell a story because I just fucking love it. So in TLB, you know, we always get to go to these great kind of meetings with big-time producers and things like that, especially because Tom's being in the band. And whenever we find ourselves in those scenarios, people will come up to Eric and I because, you know, we look the part. We've got our jackets on. We're musicians. We look, you know, look like the part. And they're like, oh, who are these guys? we got to go talk to them. So people come up and talk to Eric and I. And the best thing is... They'll say, so who are you guys? Well, you know, TLB and, you know, playing a band, you know, this, that, and the other thing, a punk band. And Eric always kind of throws in. He's like, well, I dig sewers for the city of Lombard. And, uh, you know, I usually see the guy that we're talking to back up very slowly, you know, out of the room. Because it's like, okay, this guy can't do anything for me. He, He digs sewers. And it's just, I love that shit. I love making it awkward for those people when they come and do that. Because it's like, they're so there to network and to find like the cool people to talk to. And that's what this scene reminds me of. It's like, as soon as Steve Coogan realized that it could do something for me, his whole tune changes and it's like, fuck you, get out of here, you know? And there's no coincidence that this scene is set in LA and they even go into conversation like right off the bat about Lena living there and Coogan uh, not being entirely down with it, but still putting out that LA vibe of what can you do for me? Totally. And uh, I guess, you know, there's two more scenes to talk about. I don't know if you want to talk about Bill Murray last or now. Well, I mean, yeah, we could just get that. I mean, the last scene is with Taylor Mead and William Rice, and I have nothing to say about this scene other than it is a uh, meditation on, uh, I don't know, passage of time and death. That's all. I, it's, it's a little incomprehensible, but it does kind of close the film. Um, that's all I have to say about it, unless you've got something to add. Well, I just wanted to say, I think, again, Jim Jarmusch being genius to at least get these two people that are legends of New York yeah. City and get them in a room to, to just talk and, and to showcase the genius weirdness that is these two men. So uh, Bill Rice is a member of the avant-garde art scene in New York City, and Taylor Mead appeared in many of Andy Warhol's factory films, as they called them. And so these two people are giants, and maybe not many people would recognize their names now. But if you did a little digging, you would find that they're very important people to the New York City scene. And at one point, there's a cheersing of these coffee cups. And Taylor says, let's cheers to Paris in the 1920s and all this sort of romanticized things. He's always romanticizing everything, pretending that the coffee is champagne. And Bill Rice says, well, why don't we cheers to New York in the late 1970s? To me... That was a beautiful little moment for Jim Jarmusch to be able to say thank you almost to these actors and to these, to these people in general um, that made a difference in the culture of New York City and the life of the 1970s art, art movement there. Absolutely. Pivotal, pivotal scene and pivotal time. And uh, he had a little sneer uh, at the reaction of it, but he, he graciously accepted it eventually. Almost like, can you believe that that would be, like in 2003, it's almost like, could you believe that what we did then could really even be anything. Yeah. Look at that. You talked about Jim Jarmusch for 40 years making films. He's part of that scene. That's crazy. Jim Jarmusch to me looks like a 30-year-old kid. He looks like? Are you looking at a picture of him right now? No, I'm just saying in general he feels like that. He just feels so relevant and so 
current and so great. And, and yeah, he doesn't look, even though he's got white hair, he looks like he's just fucking cool, like 40 year old. I, I took know? that literally. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, also, uh, the fact that, that, that he has respect for all of that, you know, and wants to, you know, he doesn't go out there and do press junkets. I don't think, and say, Hey, this is who I have in this movie just literally thinks that they're important and wants to put them on film, and I'm glad that that scene exists. It's better with context. But yeah, the second to last scene is Delirium, probably the most uh, kind of recognizable scene of this film. If anybody's going to be uh, recognizing this, it'd be probably this one. It's the Rizza, the Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan, sit down with Bill Murray. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, they're drinking tea, avoiding the caffeine, and as you said, combining the, the music and medicine. Um, and Bill Murray just kind of shows up kind of like, so this is, this was filmed kind of just after the haze of, of Bill Murray's nineties career. This was, this is like a little bit after Rushmore and Tannenbaum's. It was still kind of when, like in the nineties, when, when Bill Murray was, uh, kind of seen as a washed up comedian, to be honest, he's, he's, he was the guy in a lot of good eighties films, but he's been making, uh, a slew of crap through the nineties. And this is i mean not not the early 90s right like groundhog day would still be like early 90s right yeah for sure but then he still went on rouged and stuff it's weird to like think of now but he certainly was not viewed as anybody uh as anybody going anywhere at the time before that turnaround before he started working with wes anderson before he started which would be 1998 yeah so right so i i think in the middle 90s there he just what there wasn't too much going on but wes anderson of course puts him in rushmore and there it goes yeah and i wanted to mention too i sorry i'm cutting you off here but i just want to say one last thing i i'm not sure on the dates but broken flowers which i believe was his first jarmish film would have been 2003 as well right no that was after oh it was like 2005 then broken flowers was 2005 yeah which is a great underrated Jarmusch film. I, I feel like that one doesn't get uh, as much... People like it, for sure, but I think people kind of rate it like middle to lower Jarmusch. I, I put it on the upper echelon. Yeah, but then, I mean, obviously, Lost in Translation, Bill Murray, okay, Sofia Coppola, then, you know, wow, wh- look at it, working with Wes Anderson, Sofia Coppola, amazing. Yeah, so it's all these movies, but then it's also, at the same time, him popping up in these small types of roles that kind of continue that kind of the, that mysterious and legendary figure that we know him as now and it is largely because of like him literally just showing up as the as the waiter in this in this uh scene playing himself and i mean he he does that in real life he like shows up and he he drops in on people's parties randomly he's celebrated for all of his iconic roles and uh it's uh, again it's the kind of legendary status the mystique that uh, largely comes out of uh roles specifically from this one yeah for sure and again you're bill murray like that's all I remember from this film back in the day. Obviously, now rewatching it, there's so much more to take away. But damn, is that great! That line every time those guys say it, God, that's Bill. That's Bill motherfucking Murray. You know, like awesome Bill Groundhog Day motherfucking Murray. Ghost busting like ton- Bill Murray. Ghost busting Bill Murray. Some great dialogue in that, uh, and also some awesome uh, little nods to Ghost Dog. Um, because Rizza's wearing the ghost dog hat in there. Um, and Rizza had done the soundtrack for ghost dog way of the Samurai, which just got added to criterion collection, Pat. Um, so Hell if you're looking yes. for something to watch, um, and one other thing I want to say, cause I think we're nearing the end of our conversation as this is going before editing to the one twelve mark. Um, 
But I, did, I thought this would be a short call, didn't you? And, and damn, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about. I here. mean, I, I, still, I still got Jarmush to talk about, so let's, let's get to that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, please, please. The only thing I was going to say at the end here for me is that uh, in this scene, at least, Bill Murray really does shine in that comfortable yet uncomfortable way that he, he just seems to kind of sit down and have a conversation with you. I think people love that about him. Absolutely. Um, what do you think about Jim Jarmusch and using black and white in films? Brilliant. I mean, I definitely with this, it makes sense. Um, the titling with the title cards, um, just for like sort of branding in between these two and kind of the black and white checkered pattern of the theme that I mentioned and the tablecloth works very well. And if we're talking about just beautifully um, shot, I mean, I, I believe... Was it Robbie Muller? I think he helped on some of this, if not most of it, but it's beautifully shot. So, yeah, I think that's great. I think that that shows a lot of the grittiness of places. But in this film, it's actually more of the beauty within these uh, scenes. Not like seeing like Stranger Than Paradise and some of the scenes you see in that or Down by Law, shot in, both shot in black and white. Those scenes seem to have a lot more grittiness, almost like 16 millimeter fi- feel to me. Um, this definitely just feels a little bit more dipping into the shadows and the lights in these scenarios, especially when they do the, um, every scene has like the top view of what the table looks like. Um, and the cigarettes sitting there with the coffee and the shadows that play within there is just very beautiful. Yeah. I 100% agree. Um, he's, I mean, he's, he's utilized black and white throughout his entire career. His first, uh, film, a second film, Stranger Than Paradise, Down by Law, Coffee and Cigarettes, and as you mentioned, Dead Man. You're, you're, you said you're, that's, that's your number one Jarmush? Yep. Okay. These are all black and white, and uh, honestly, these are probably my four favorite films of his. And he's, he's talked about using black and white often, because um, people kind of, you know, maybe push him on that just a little bit, like he, he still utilizes the medium when it's not... Like, is it a crutch or something? Right. Kind of way? And so... I've heard his response in this, and it, it's it, it, he says that black and white takes a level of information away from the film that color gives you, and I, I love that response so much um, because it gets to the elemental aspects of films in general, as in like from the point of view of a director or a photographer, uh, I'm only going to give you this much information, and you have to fill in the rest for yourself, and it's that minimalism I think is part of why those four films are, have stayed for uh, so long with me. But then also, like we mentioned when we t- discussed in the Vivian Meyer episode, uh, how much I love mm-hmm. black and white uh, photography. Uh, again, it just kind of, he puts it perfectly. It, it takes a level of information away from the photograph the color would give you, and then your mind kind of has to work with it in that way. So it's almost like on a subconscious level, just black and white just almost tells more of a story to me when I'm looking at it, which I, when I don't even realize it. Definitely the simplicity that black and white gives you, and that's a great response because um, you are taking away something that is in your mind making up um, other kinds of thoughts and, and not letting you maybe focus so much on the story or what the, the people are saying, or like I mentioned earlier, the sounds you know that are so important into this film. You're right, though. I didn't think about how much he does use black and white in his films. Um, he does. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it, and he's just—he's such a, a visual storyteller. But it, it's all the um, aesthetics of the black and white, and then again, the other aspect we kind of touched on it before, but his incorporation of music 
throughout his career is, I think, more than anything, to be honest. His, the way he used music um, throughout his films in close to 40 years is probably what has made him uh, such an influential filmmaker for myself and, you know, I think for a lot of people. Um, he's talked about it in depth. He, um, one of his quotes uh, that I really loved was, quote, music in film is incredibly important to me because they go by in the passage of time that's controlled. A piece of music is a certain length, a film is a certain length. So how they both move in that length is musical. Even the images in a film I think of as musical. And he just goes on. It's like, music is like a drug to me. I need it every day, always. And just the amount of music that is, has been turned on, that I've been turned on to through his movies, he's just constantly using all the same we've mentioned, like the Stooges, Tom Waits, Richard Berry, Wu-Tang Clan, Neil Young, Crazy Horse, John Lurie, obviously, Elvis Presley. They, they consistently show up, and again, they're a character in his films. Maybe uh, Nick Ray had a little bit to do with his you know, work in black and white and things like that. The song, the Irma Thomas song, It's Raining, do you recall that in Down By Law? Uh, if I heard it, I would probably know it. I haven't watched Down By Law in a couple of years. so. Gotcha, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful song, and it comes at a great point in that film when they're sitting down at the table, and they're all kind of like finally getting a little respite from going through the woods so much. And when that song comes on, that, again, Jim Jarmusch turned me on to that song. I'd never heard it before, but when I, it starts like drip, drop, trip and then she comes in it's raining so it's really coming down. wait is it when uh benini's dancing with the waitress uh maybe yeah maybe that's right yeah i think uh they, that's what they see from the window or whatever because they're like what's going yeah, yeah. on with benini yeah. <laughs> he's sitting in here and he's he's not coming out to get us he's just like right, off right. in his own world like he found this amazing woman <laughs> to hang out with uh, but anyway, yeah, so to, to your point, you know, I've been turned on to music, too, um, through Jim Jarmusch films. The film ends with a, uh, a credit that he credits a lot of his influences that he talks about, Nikola Tesla, Sam Mendes, P.T. Anderson, but the, the final big letter, big capital letter credit at the very end of the film, Long Live Joe Strummer. How about it? Which, again, I need to revisit Mystery Train. Um but yeah, he was an incredible fan of Joe Strummer. He he often quotes uh, Joe Strummer's uh, idea about the creative process: no input, no output. And that's why he loves working. Jarmusch, why he loves working in so many different mediums all the time. Different mediums, primarily being painting, music, film. He's he's described himself as a non-professional filmmaker, a self-described dilettante which means he's an amateur. He's always trying to put himself in the role of an amateur so that he can work in different mediums. And it's really that connection that he's always had with Joe Strummer where he's just consistently to trying to work in different mediums. Uh, you know, I'm, this is obviously something you're very familiar with, working in so many different mediums and uh, expressing in different formats. And I think that's, again, one thing that uh, has consistently stayed with me uh, from Jarmusch over the years. So he's definitely been talked about as one of, if not the best, independent film directors of our time, if not in history, for sure. Uh, that William S. Burroughs, the Criterion Collection had put out a William S. Burroughs saved film that he was part of like early on that was just like them following him around. <laughs> Crazy shit. Like the guy, the people that he thought was interesting to follow around and to, to, to think about. Nicholas Ray being the guy who directed some of the greatest 
films in Hollywood history, Rebel Without a Cause being one of them, taking him under his wing and him then becoming this great director on his own is such a great story to me. And then being part of this incredible, as you're talking about, new age, people take for granted that punk rock is here and that Andy Warhol, you know, because it seemingly was so easy these people, nobody thought about it before Andy Warhol started doing screen prints, you know, that he could make a ton of money off of because it was easy to make a ton of them. And they were all different and cool and different colors. And Liz Taylor four up on a thing with just different colors. Like nowadays, that's something people feel <clears throat> is easy to do. And maybe back then it was easy to do once you thought of it, but somebody had to think of it. And I can't say enough about all those people culminated in CBGBs, you know, watching the Ramones, Jim Jarmusch hanging out, uh, everybody in that scene and that 19 late 1970s art scene had a gigantic footprint and lasting influence on the world of art and culture. No doubt. Absolutely. And long live Joe Strummer, absolutely. Uh, anybody that's listening out there, I can't imagine you're listening to this this long through this episode and not thinking about how great Joe Strummer was and how much of a prophet that man was. Uh, long live Joe Strummer. I re-listened to the Sardinistas uh, a few months back. Uh, it's such an incredible album. I love it so much. I talk about The Clash all the time and the fact that I just didn't like them at first. Um, same way of the Ramones. It's these things that I don't understand and I don't get that become the most important art that I consume in my life. Warren Zevon's the same way. When I first heard him, I was kind of like, it's a little off-putting. But when you dig into what he's saying, when you dig into uh, just the sheer like unaf- being unafraid to do it your way, Joe Strummer was like that. The Ramones were like that. They were just doing these things that were coming out of them. And you said it great in one of these episodes before that, you know, when you're young, you don't ask for permission. None of these people are asking for permission. It's just what they're doing. And a lot of times they're doing some things that are completely brand new. And in a world that's inundated with people that can edit video now on their phones, you know, there was a time when nobody knew how to get their hands on a camera or if the film would even last without burning up because it was, you know, extremely flammable and all these things. And the way that we got to this point, now that our phones in our pocket can film these things, it still means that the person behind the creative has to be a rebel, has to be a Jim Jarmish to have any kind of lasting staying power. That's why that Zevon episode was so important to me because I want people to remember that you have to do something that's lasting, not just cutting corners to try to make your way in the art world. You'll, you'll never last. There's no room for that in history, at least in my opinion. As we come to a close soon, uh, I just wanted to talk about what remains for me from Coffee and Cigarettes is Jarmusch uh, being his most pure with himself in this movie. Um, I'm not saying it's his best film, but I think it captures what he talks about and what his influences are in life the most. As, as he says, the odd characters having odd conversations. Um, and I think that's how I've always read uh, Coffee and Cigarettes, experimenting in new mediums. The way it goes in and out of people's lives, the conversations, the relationships and the conversations that they have with each other and the lasting effects those interactions have on you. It's that stream of input that doesn't end and everything involved in it is what makes you the person that you are. 
and in closing, it, it makes me think of what we talked about with Warren Zevon, whether you're the good wolf or the evil wolf, and how that's dependent on which one you feed. Well here, if you put yourself out there and you have strange conversations with odd characters in life while having coffee, you're going to be feeding the good wolf. Wonderfully said. That was great, Pat. And I, don't, I really don't have anything to add there other than thanks for uh, mentioning coffee and cigarettes because I don't think I would have revisited it this soon um, if I hadn't. However, revisiting it now in 2021 with this pandemic going makes me wish that we were doing this over coffee and cigarettes, but we'll just have to postpone that a little bit longer. Uh, and either way, it's still great to do it while it's virtual. It's still oh, we're, we'll definitely get back to the coffee, uh, maybe not the cigarettes, but we'll get back to the coffee soon. Fuck it, I'm bringing a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my man. Well, thanks again for having this conversation. Maybe our longest yet, but I think it was um, well, it definitely filled my day up with a lot of joy. So thanks a lot. You have been listening to Remainders. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Darren Burrell and Patrick McIntyre. Original music, episode art, logo, and editing by Darren Burrell. Find out what else remains by visiting our website at remainderspod.com. And we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search at remainderspod. Please tell anyone you can about our show, and we look forward to telling you more of what remains next time.